0: Hello and welcome back to this, the first episode of the Heredity podcast for 2017. This month we find out how fruit fly genes can influence their social experience and how birch trees might be taking a leaf out of a bacterial book to fight off toxic metals. We've all had the experience of going to a party and feeling uncomfortable this isn't your crowd, and somehow it feels like people can sense it, and they treat you differently. Well, it turns out fruit flies feel just the same. (laughs) Okay, not exactly the same, but they do appear to be treated differently in groups which they don't prefer. That's according to Julia Saltz from Rice University in Texas, US. What's more, the basis for this response appears to be genetic. I called Julia, who started by giving me a bit of background on social choice in animals.
1: There's quite a number of animals that don't have the opportunity to do a lot of social choice. So like animals that live in family groups, you're born in your family group, and that's pretty much it for you. But for animals like us and like fish um, that can make choices, there's some work on how individuals might choose to be in one group versus another.
0: How do genes play into this particular decision-making process?
1: There's lots of evidence that most traits are heritable, right? So if you know that there are traits like choices um, that differ between individuals, it's likely that some of those differences are due to genetic reasons. So it's really just putting together two pieces of information that are obvious. One is that your traits and behaviors might affect uh, what environments you experience. And the other is that differences in individuals' traits and behaviors are typically heritable. Um, But those are still kind of studied as separate phenomena. And I want to stop that from happening. <laughs> they should be studied together.
0: Which is precisely what you've tried to do in this study, and you've done that in a classic model organism, the fly Drosophila melanogaster. Tell me, how, what did you do in your study?
1: Yeah, so I had previously shown that some genotypes prefer larger groups and other genotypes prefer smaller groups. But I really wanted to focus on why would that matter that different genotypes choose different group sizes? Um, And so to do that, I forced independent individuals from each genotype to experience either their preferred group size or their unpreferred group size, which I knew from those preference tests. Um, And then I measured just what happened to them in the group.
0: And the consequence of doing this was a rise or a fall in aggressive behavior. Tell me, what did you observe in these groups?
1: Yeah, so surprisingly, the size of the group wasn't very important for Aggression towards the focal individual. The surprising effect was that um, the predictor, the best predictor of how many times a male would be attacked in his group was whether it was his preferred group or his unpreferred group, independent on which group it actually was. So, for example, a male in a group of eight flies um, who liked that group would be attacked more than. in an unpreferred group of four flies, but a different genotype that preferred the group of four and didn't like the group of eight would actually be attacked more in the group of four. The sort of key thing about this is that choosing your group actually has important consequences for what types of social experience you'll have. Um, And I showed that that experience also has consequences even the following day when you're no longer in that group. Yes, tell me more about that. Yeah, so we took... I took each male after he had experienced his preferred or unpreferred group and put him in a standard environment containing an aged matched naive stimulus male. And then I measured the aggression that occurred in that interaction. And so that asked the question of whether their prior experience affected their later behavior. So what we found is that males who were attacked more on the, in their preferred or unpreferred group on the first day of the experiment were less aggressive the following day. Now, now that
0: seems to have relatively large reaching um, implications, especially as far as uh, understanding model organisms goes. You know, if if the behaviour of this organism is not only influenced by their genotype in in the first place, then the environment they get put into and how that relates to the genotype that they are, and then the environment they might be put put into afterwards, and then all of those things are impacting, how likely is it that we're getting a very clean picture of how an organism is going to react in any circumstance if there are all these previous factors which could be impacting it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, model organisms are where we have the best chance of understanding these processes. That's why I study model organisms. And that includes humans. So there's lots of knowledge in human psychology literature about how social experiences in humans are are heritable as well. So like divorce is one that comes to mind and other, unfortunately, it's all focused on very sad events, like, you know, traumatic experiences that can contribute to mental illness. And so, of course, in humans, we don't have the opportunity to do an experiment where we say, okay, here's two identical twins, you're going to get, you know, abused and you're not, and then we'll see which one of you gets schizophrenia. So that's not allowed. Um I think even for people that aren't interested in um, social environment construction itself, I think one take-home message is that there is no such thing as a standard social environment. And so rather than, you know, putting animals in what you think is a standard environment and then walking away, I think, you know, at minimum measuring what kinds of experiences that animals are having in a particular environment can actually help you make sense of the resulting Uh, phenotypic changes or whatever outcome measure you have in your study.
0: That was Julia Saltz from Rice University in the States. (music) Heavy metals pose a threat to many plants, often causing cellular damage and ultimately death. Perhaps unsurprisingly then, plants have developed many mechanisms to protect themselves. But one particular example of protection has come as a bit of a surprise to researchers. Kabwe Congolo and his team from Laurentian University in Ontario, Canada, started studying nickel resistance in the white birch tree, and they think that a gene associated with this resistance started life not in a plant, but in a bacterium. I called up Kabwe to find out more, and he started by giving me a bit of background on heavy metal toxicity in plants.
2: Uh, any metals are, uh, can be picked up from the environment uh, to uh, plant tissue through uh, rhizosphere, through root systems, and then the metal will translocate to a different part of the plant in uh, many different ways. Uh, And uh, in our our environment here, we deal more with nickel and copper, and uh, to some extent, arsenic. But in many parts of the world, the problems might be with other metals and uh, any type of heavy metals will cause problems. And uh, uh, most of the problems are physiological leading to plant death. But over the years, uh, many plants have developed mechanisms to deal with metals toxicity.
0: And so tell me, the plant that you've been studying in this particular paper is the white birch. Tell me a little bit about that plant.
2: White birch is, a, is one of the the, the plant that uh, colonise uh, our environment is a dominant tree of boreal forest. It's also shown that uh, the white birch is uh, quite resistant to metals, specifically to nickel.
0: So tell me, you wanted to find out exactly how this metal resistance worked.
2: How did you go about doing that? We designed an experimental method uh, in control environment in growth Chamber. And uh, we uh, treat different genotypes of, uh, of uh, white birch with different concentrations of nickels. And uh, from there, we identify uh, genotypes that are resistant and those are susceptible. And we, uh, we extract RNA and we did a pars- uh, the, the transcriptome analysis that uh, shows us most of the genes that were upregulated and downregulated.
0: And so when you then started to analyse which genes were upregulated, you found one gene in particular of the, of the several that popped out, which really grabbed your attention. Can you tell me a bit more about that?
2: We identified seven genes, but one of particular interest was uh, Tom B. Uh, Tom B was the most upregulated of all the genes uh, that uh, we identified. And our interest started there to analyse how this uh, Tom B, which is basically a prokaryote-like Uh, uh, proteins, uh, why is it associated with nickel resistance? And uh, we did several studies to come up with this conclusion that uh, this uh, TOMB is indeed uh, one of the main mechanisms involved in resistance.
0: And you recognise TOMB because it's very similar to a gene which is used by prokaryotes in metal resistance.
2: Yes. TOMB is uh, (laughs) a Is a transporter uh, and is a very uh, well known in a prokaryotes, mostly in bacteria. Uh, and we were the first to discover that the Tomb B is present in a higher plant and most, uh, most importantly associated for resistance to nickel.
0: And so, how do you think it's got there? How has it got from the bacterium to the plant?
2: That's the, the million question there. So, how did it get there? The most likely theory is uh, this gene might have been transferred to betula horizontally over the years through evolution.
0: Now, prokaryotes use ton B in nickel resistance, and it seems that this, the white birch is also trying to develop a mechanism for nickel resistance. Is it possible that they've just both come up with the same answer through evolution with no horizontal transfer?
2: Yes, that's a very good possibility that it may be there and that's why our...
0: Do do you think there'll be more examples of higher plants borrowing uh, defence mechanisms or potentially other mechanisms from prokaryotes perhaps? Is that something you think you're going to find more of in the future?
2: The most common cases of uh, horizontal transfer are from prokaryotes to lower plants. It's very... uh, not very common uh, to find in higher plants but... uh, more, as more data are being published, uh, we find that horizontal transfer are also involved in higher plants as well.
0: That was Kabwe Kongolo from the Laurentian University in Canada. And that brings us to the end of this episode of the Heredity Podcast. See you next month and thanks for listening.